0: This episode of Writing Excuses is brought to you by Audible. Visit slash excuse to start your free trial membership.
1: This is Writing Excuses, Season 6, Episode 20. Endings! 15 minutes long because you're in a hurry? And this
2: is our last episode, folks. Sorry. Really? What? What? Isn't I- that what endings meant? No. <sighs> I'm Howard. I'm Mary. I'm Dan.
3: I'm Ziggy Stardust.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Lou Anders, Hugo Award winning Lou Anders, uh, joins us. Um, We should mention joins uh, Dan and Howard and Hugo Award winning Mary (laughs) for a discussion of endings. Um, Specifically, we want to focus on, um, you've got a book. uh, You need to tie it up. Are we tying it up in a bow? Are we locking it in a box and dropping it to the bottom of the river? Um, Going out with a bang. Going out with a bang, fizzle. What do we do?
4: Yes. And that's one of the things that I I see a lot of new writers struggle with. And that was one of the things that I had the biggest problem with when I started writing is that I would write a story that had a great beginning and it had a great ending and they were from two different stories. And so the ending failed. (laughs) The ending failed miserably because it didn't live up to the promise of the beginning. Um, so, So for me as a writer, that is one of the things... Um, that I'm most interested in seeing people improve on. Also, when I'm reading slush, and I, <laughs> and it's like, oh, the story is so good. Please nail the ending.
0: Please nail the ending. Oh, and then that's they too bad.
4: Wow.
1: Yes, you did a lot of you did a lot of flips off of that diving board, <laughs> but the belly flop at the end <laughs> it's just didn't really sell unfortunate.
4: It. Um, and so, the two times in my life that I really have had a. Um, An epiphany about ending was one with the mice quotient, which we talked about. And the other was uh, when we had talked about uh, the Hollywood formula. Because I realized that I could take that idea of um, what was happening in the end of the book and try to um, have much more control about it. So um, since we have Lou here and have recently been talking about the Hollywood formula, can you? um, we didn't go into a lot of how that plays out in the end. Why don't we start there and then we can talk about some of the other, the other ways because that is not the only way to handle an ending.
3: Well, in the Hollywood formula, the protagonist has to overcome the antagonist, has to achieve his goal, and has to reconcile his relationship with the, with the dynamic of relationship character, which is the companion character that accompanies him on right. his journey. And the closer these three things can happen to each other, the more emotional impact the film will have.
1: So, give us an example of some place, somebody who just nailed it, where all three of those things happened in, like, 30 seconds, or two minutes, or whatever.
3: Well, Casablanca. Okay. Um, the Crying Game. Okay. Um, an example where they don't is in Steven Spielberg's Hook, which gives <sighs> us no oh, yes. reconciliation, mm. and six separate endings. Only six? Oh. It... Um, I well, think they nail it in the Matrix. Yeah. Neo accepts his relationship mm-hmm. as the one beats the bad guy. he, you know, mm-hmm. try, yeah. he brings Morpheus all has been trying to tell him you're the one. Together. He doesn't want to believe. Mm-hmm. He does. He does the Buddha breathing where he sees all the code in the hallway, and then he beats, defeats the bad guy. Film over.
4: Yeah, and what what made me i i was um I was working on uh, Glamour and Glass, and i i had um, I had them defeating the villain in one chapter, and then achieving the goal in another chapter and then reconciling in a third and i knew that the ending was failing and i could not figure out why it was misfiring but i could tell that it was and was and it
1: glamour and glass or shades of milk and no, honey no it's glamour and glass okay
4: yeah sadly this was after i wrote N2 and turned shades <laughs> of milk and honey um but i could tell that it was misfiring and so after the conversation where where Lou had talked about the Hollywood formula, I went back and was like, "Well, how close can I make these things happen to each other?" And I, I adjusted it so that they all happen in the same chapter now, or, or within a chapter and a half, um, and uh, and and started handing it to my betas and was getting tears and was like, "Aha!" <laughs> that is why this formula works. I like this formula. I get it now. But there are other cases where I think that that probably. Does not work as well where the the antagonist is not as clearly defined. You know, I've got Napoleon, so that's you know.
3: Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then they shot Napoleon.
4: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, Lou. <laughs> you know what's
1: what's interesting to me is that I have long subscribed to the the three act format, um, not because I think that three acts are the way things uh, things are deconstructed, but when I construct them, it's easier for me to do it in three parts. And my, my methodology is incredibly sloppy. I write about two-thirds of the way through the second act, and then I sit down with my writer's group and I ask them, okay, what are the promises I've made to the readers? What are the things that have to be resolved? Um, what, are the, what are the running gags you want to see more of? Um, what is the absolute lowest point that you think uh, you think the story could come to? And I make a long list of these things, and then... In the you know in the final uh, you know act and one third of the book, I write I, I do far more writing work at that point than I, the whole front end is just slop and me telling jokes and hanging Chekhov's guns on walls. Um, but once I started doing that, I think I may have you know instinctively started compressing some of these Hollywood formula elements. You know, the more of these things I can get to have happen at once, the better. Um, I don't know. I've only pulled it off a couple of times, though.
4: When I when I see things in, in short fiction, uh, frequently when something has gone wrong with the ending, it's the ending is actually fine. It's perfectly solid. It's the um, that they have messed up earlier in the book, or in the, in the story. They have, have failed to
2: build up to it properly. Exactly.
4: They have not laid promises for the reader. Mm-hmm. I
3: think when it doesn't work, it's overstaying the welcome. Yeah. Um, twice in my career as an anthologist, I have axed the last paragraph in a short story and the way it happened was both times my printer failed to print the last page. <laughs> and I read the story and bought the story and then when I sent my notes and the author cleaned it up and sent it back I said what's this final paragraph here? <laughs> that I had not seen, so my printer knew better than either of us. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I'll give an example. There's a mystery writer. Named we need
1: to give uh, your printer a, your Hugo. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> well, the Hugo wasn't for short fiction. Oh
3: can, well. Okay. The printer can get its own.
4: Okay. <laughs> but um, but
3: it um. It can't have
4: mine. And,
3: <laughs> and, and sadly, this was an old dot matrix printer, so this was back in the day. This story. So oh, so it's dead. Yeah. So it, so it, it has We no can't give anymore. it a Hugo. Red can get a retro Hugo. Yeah,
1: yeah, you
4: know.
3: But um, but the the O'Neill de sent me a story about a. A police officer in Louisiana, in New Orleans or somewhere, who um, in Florida, I think, who is um, watching a, a child that, that, that graduates from strangling pets to, to killing girls. And he knows it, but there's no way to prove it. <laughs> <laughs> I we'll just sorry, there's a monkey on a <laughs> tricycle here with we'll this. We'll just ignore that <laughs> noise.
4: Harpo, what are you doing and, here? And <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
3: hiding from Groucho. Um, if you... You it. were saying <laughs> I'm just throwing... Now I'm imagining, you know, you know, they had to shoot the last Marx Brothers film without Harpo because the other, all the other brothers wanted to kill him mm. for reasons we won't go into. Um, <laughs> but there's your ending for that. Um, <laughs> and then they killed Harpo. So so he, he takes matters into his own hands and takes the kid out that's been killing girls and changes him to a tree and feeds him to an alligator. And uh, then he moves and he's in a new location and he thinks he's gotten all this behind him and life is going to be good now and he sees a boy abusing a pet and that was what I thought was the end. But there's a f- next paragraph where he says I remembered the first kid, I'm going to go talk to this kid's parent and tell the kid's parent not to abuse the pet because you know, that it leads to worse things and that way this boy won't grow up like that boy. And I saw that last paragraph, and I'm like, no, 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 no. It cut ends the story with, off here's the another haze. boy doing this. Mm-hmm. I better go get my alligator. You know, <laughs> that's the ending.
4: Yeah, and this is something that short fiction, I think, can do extremely well, which is to take you up to a point where there are enough clues that the reader can finish that, the rest of the story. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And, um, and that's, I mean, The Lady and the Tiger is, is the classic example of that, where they it takes you up to the point where that decision is going to happen and then doesn't tell you what happens next and and it's not something you can do easily and often it's, it's very tricky but but when you do it right it can be extraordinarily powerful and it it is all about laying the groundwork before you get to that ending
2: yeah now and uh, along those lines there's a wonderful quote from Ray Bradbury where he talks about uh, about doing that with novels and he says by the time your reader finishes a novel They should be ready to step into the sequel and solve the next problem Mm -hmm. because this novel has prepared them for that. And so, you know, giving the reader, I mean, whether or not, you know, you let them just tell the end of the final story to themselves or whatever, you give them the tools that they need to feel like they have gained something and like they're ready to move on.
1: Every year, one thing is always predictable. Postage costs go up.
2: Once again, that is going to come to us from Lou Anders.
3: Uh, I, you were going to pitch to us, very quickly, a James Eng book. Very quickly, James Ing's Blood of Ambrose, which was a World Fantasy Award nominated author, it, uh, a novel. It is a classic sword and sorcery about Morlock Ambrosius, the son of Merlin. Morlock is the master of all magical makers, which is a very hands-on alchemy. He is the greatest swordsman of his world, having killed his mentor, the previous greatest swordsman of his world. His blood burns with contact the o- from with oxygen due to his magical heritage, and he is an exile from his homeland and a surly, dry drunk. I describe him to people as if you were to take Elric's Black Sword Stormbringer away from Elric and give it to Hugh Laurie on house. <laughs> okay, I want to read this book now.
1: Sold. <laughs> so head on out to audiblepodcast.com slash excuse, kick off a 14-day free trial membership, and download a copy of...
3: Blood of Ambrose.
1: Blood of Ambrose by... James Ng. James Ng. E-N-G-E. E-N-G-E. And uh, help support the podcast and enjoy yourself some uh, World Fantasy Award-nominated fiction.
0: Brilliant.
2: Okay, I want to uh, take us away a little bit from structural models looking at endings. And just have uh, one point from my own recent experience, I uh, am doing a book with Harper called Partials, coming out next year, big science fiction. This was a new experience for me because I, I, I wrote it based on a pitch rather than submitting a full novel. And so we kind of put together the book, and especially the ending, uh, in talks with my editor. And as we were looking at the various themes we were dealing with and the various problems that were confronting this society post-apocalypse, um, you know, I realized at one point that we were not going big enough. That this novel could be telling a much bigger story than it was because if we end it, you know, at this point, then, yes, we're revealing some stuff and we're solving a couple of problems. But if we end it about a week later, we can solve some enormous problems and still have plenty left for books two and three. So that would be my next piece of advice. Don't be afraid to go as big as you can. There's no, no reason to hold back in your ending.
4: At the same time... <laughs> <laughs> Don't there
2: sometimes are reasons.
4: Well, no. Don't be afraid to to have the big problem not be world-shattering. Mm-hmm. Like, one Absolutely. Of the, one of the problems that I fought myself on with Shades of Milk and Honey was um, not introducing an evil overlord, essentially. Was the, the instinct to go bigger and raise the stakes by making it a larger world thing was very, very strong, because that's something we see in fantasy and science fiction a lot. But... Um, Just raising the stakes does not necessarily mean the fate of the world.
3: Yes, yes, yes. Speaking rapidly, I am sick to death of Doctor Who saving the universe every single episode. The entire universe, sometimes the entire multiverse, but never less than the whole universe. Sometimes it's just the entire Earth and everyone on it forever. Mm -hmm. Um, One of the most powerful episodes of Doctor Who ever written was Robert Holmes' The Caves of Androzani, where absolutely nothing is at stake except the lives of about 20 people, all of whom die. And all the Doctor accomplishes in that episode Is he saves his companion And not even mm-hmm. himself That was Peter Davison's last episode yeah. Incredibly powerful mm-hmm. Nothing world shadowing at stake Except for the personal yeah. um, I um, love Douglas Adams But I noticed that Douglas Adams can't end things And the way Adams ends all his novels Is to skip to the week after the ending And have people reflect <laughs> on what you didn't get Look to read Look back and say Man, yes. that was a
2: big epic battle, wasn't it? Like every battle in the Game of Thrones TV yep. series Um... <laughs> Budget. There'll be battles in the second <laughs> season, I'm sure. Uh, along those same lines, and I know many people disagree with me, but one of my very favorite episodes of Battlestar Galactica was the boxing episode. They were not dealing with a huge Cylon war. They were not dealing with a massive crisis. They were just dealing with all of their personal problems mm-hmm. and working them out. And I loved it.
4: But the reason that this, that these smaller things work with the Battlestar Galactica is because there is something at stake that mm-hmm. is distinctly personal to the character. Yes. And they lay all of that groundwork ahead of time so that you care enormously by Mm -hmm. the time the ending comes around. Well, and
2: in defense of my go-big statement, Uh, within the bounds of the story they are deciding to tell, and even with Shades of Milk and Honey, within the strictures you set for yourself, you gave it the biggest ending you could.
4: Yes.
1: Well, and one of the things that uh, Pat Rothfuss pointed out during... Oh, I want to say it was our first Worldcon episode um, several weeks ago. Um, Pat said that there's much worse things that can happen to a character than dying. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, There's much worse things that can happen to your universe than, uh, oh, Doctor Who, oh, no, the the Earth got blown up. Um, You know, I was the most touched in the Doctor Who episode where uh, Rory got temporally disintegrated. And then Amy forgot him.
4: Yeah. That was
1: far more powerful to me than any of the rest of that. And so I think the take home for our listeners is find ways to sell that big threat and find ways to sell that big rescue without resorting to, oh, no, the evil person is going to nuke the earth from the moon. Mm hmm.
3: Well, you've rooted it, even if it is nuking the earth and the moon, in the wants and desires of the characters, yeah. which brings I us back to the Hollywood formula and how they have to either achieve or abandon those desires. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. And then bring the curtain goals.
4: down. Yeah, absolutely. And and um, you have in fact reminded me, Dan, that in Shades of Milk and Honey, I I deleted, um veered off from the Jane Austen formula because Jane Austen actually has horse chases and duels in her books, but they mm-hmm. all happen off stage.
3: <laughs> that's true and that's interesting
4: and so i i deviated from her formula and raised the stakes and went as big as i could by having them happen on stage which confuses some of the purists
1: now i'm working on a short story and i i read it to uh, i read it at my reading uh, here at DragonCon, and everybody liked it um and then i explained to them this story is very very broken um and as i explained that they were all oh Yeah, the ending was really good, but the action scene, we all kind of knew what was going to happen, and the really interesting bit was the first bit, and what I pointed out to them is, yeah, the story has a personality problem, and the personality problem is that first bit is really, really interesting and wants to be paid off at the ending, and that's not what's being paid off at the ending. And so when I go back and rewrite the story, I either have to throw away the first bit so that Mm -hmm. the current ending is what's being paid off. And I think that would be a bad idea because the part everybody loved was the first bit. Um, (laughs) Or I have to completely rewrite the end of it so that the groundwork that's been laid is the groundwork that's being built upon Mm -hmm. at at the ending.
3: You've just succinctly explained everything that's wrong with The Matrix 2 and (laughs) 3. And and another
2: example is the movie Hancock with Will Smith, which is two completely different movies, both of them very good, but not related to each other. And yeah. that's why, in my opinion, that's why most people don't like that movie, is because the first hour promises you one thing, and the second hour gives you, very effectively, something completely different. And mm-hmm. so it just doesn't hold together.
4: Yeah, and this goes back to the mice quotient, which, is, uh, which we've talked about before, and how you can tie the ending to the beginning by looking at what promises you make to your reader. You're making a social contract. So...
2: Excellent.
1: All right. Well, um... This
2: is not, as we said, our last episode. Don't worry. That was just our little joke.
1: Oh, good. Thank you, Dan. <laughs> it was
2: um, it's funny. your last episode, Howard. We, <laughs> we're replacing you with... Oh. What if I get a really, good, what if guy guy a really
1: really good writing prompt? Okay. Good. What if I give a really all right. good writing
3: prompt? The writing prompt, the end-all writing prompt. Let, let's see it, and we'll okay.
1: see Okay. Um, take your least favorite recent movie. Take the first 15 minutes of your least favorite recent movie and write down what you believe the groundwork was that was laid. Now ignore the rest of the movie, write the ending, and I'm not playing, you know, how it should have ended with the, you know, Mm -hmm. we should have just flown the eagles to mortar. You know, do something, (laughs) do something, uh, you know, tricky and sensible and wonderful with the first 15 minutes of your least favorite recent film. Excellent. Okay,
2: we'll let you stay. Thank you.
1: This has been Writing Excuses. You are out of excuses. Now go right.
0: If you aren't familiar with Locus Magazine, they're a long-standing and respected website, magazine, archive, and resource for science fiction, fantasy, and horror. Basically, they're the industry magazine for our genre. They also run the annual Locus Awards, a top-tier award that recognizes new, diverse, and excellent voices in speculative fiction.